American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy, don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. Hey guys, welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. I'm Sam Eldridge, and over there is Blaine Eldridge. La, 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 la. This week, we sat down with Dr. Tremper Longman, who is the author of a ton of books, and most recently, Confronting Old Testament Controversies. I actually reached out to him before I knew the book was coming out, because um, he is considered the foremost scholar on the Old Testament, and I've had- That's so- alive right now. That's alive. Fair enough. Good point. I went in with this question that Susie and I have been asking of just how you reconcile the Old Testament with the New. It feels- awkward. It feels stodgy. It feels like kind of this embarrassing, massive portion of the Bible that many of my friends have a hard time with. And I certainly have a hard time with some of the topics as well. Yeah. And even what I want to do here at the outset is pray and you guys join along. Holy Spirit, let there be light. It's the first thing Jesus does in creation. He does it before the sun and the stars exist. In the Psalms, it says, by your light, I see light. So like, Jesus, come up with your light and direct us towards what you want to show us and we'll walk with you right now. Because we do, in this conversation, jump a little bit into the apparent violence of God in the Old Testament, jump into contemporary debates in science, and jump into sort of the readerly strategies by which we engage the Old Testament. So just an invitation to come... Uh, ready to have God show you what he's up to right now? Because the point is, the Bible is this unified story that reveals God, who is noble and good. What's the next step in knowing him more? Hope you guys enjoy it. Dr. Longman, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today and jumping on to not only talk about your new book, but to kind of address some things that I know Susie and I have been wrestling with a lot recently. Susie's my wife, um, for those of you who don't know. I, I'm really excited about it. Just to kick us off, thank you for giving us some of your time. Um, your book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies. I mean, we actually, before this interview, knew that you were you were prolific and well-studied. I actually tried looking up how many books you'd written, and I lost count somewhere in like the 20s. Do you know the actual number anymore, or have you just written so much that <laughs> well, it's come Sam, thanks so much for having me on. It's uh, great to hear your voice again. And um, and actually, I'm pretty uh, careful not to count how many books I've written. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I know it's somewhere around 35. And uh, but right. it depends on if you count. You know, I've, I've co-authored a number with other people, most notably my buddy Dan Allender. Um, right. But... Um, but yeah, so I just keep plugging away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my question then is, why this book, and and why now? Uh, it feels like you're you're yeah. seeing a need that needed to be addressed. I'm I'm super curious about that. Yeah. Um, well, there are 
A couple things. There's uh, one kind of uh, boring answer, which is my publisher suggested that I write this book. Yeah. Uh, and um, and but then I wanted to write this book because all through my career, I've noticed that people, Christians, have a hard time with the Old Testament, and if anything, unfortunately that has only increased in recent years. And, uh, and I've been working on these topics uh, for decades, essentially, especially the violence topic is one of the first topics I started studying. And believe it or not, it wasn't a controversial issue with most Christians uh, in the 80s and 90s. It was with mm. some from the peace, so-called peace churches like Mennonite tradition. Sure, but uh, but for many, it wasn't until nine eleven that that the violence issue became uh, difficult, and then of course the sexuality issue. and And what I'm particularly addressing in the um, in the book are some recent evangelical Protestant rethinkings of these topics, which I think are going in a wrong direction. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Even when you say. Old Testament, something happens in most of the Christian circles I'm aware of, where there is a yeah. There's an image of Charlton Heston as Moses <laughs> on a mountainside, and it's very dusty and it's old and it's confusing. And maybe to just get right into it, beginning to engage the Old Testament. What are some of the like the very first things that a person needs to know? That's great. That's a great way of putting it, though. I thought for those of you who are younger than me, it would be Christian Bale that <laughs> rather than Charlton Heston. I think he played Moses in one of the more recent ones. Yeah, I, I skipped, I skipped that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't see that one either. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think there. A couple things. One, I might surprise you a little bit by pointing out that, yeah, the Old Testament is old, and there are some things that are not as immediately relevant to us today. I mean, we're not offering animal sacrifices and so forth. We don't go to a temple. Jesus' is coming does affect our understanding of the Old Testament in many ways, uh, there's, but there's continuity and discontinuity, and there's a whole bunch of things that are ex- still extremely relevant to us. And I think, well, we're, where where we might want to start is with Luke 24, where Jesus says that the whole Old Testament—he doesn't use that term, of course—but the whole Old Testament anticipates his coming. He says the law and the prophets, and one time, another time, he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's just first century Jewish ways of saying uh, the Old Testament. Right. So, so the so the Old Testament is Jesus's Bible. It points to Jesus. There's there's both continuity and discontinuity. And even when there's discontinuity, the Old Testament's critically important. I mean, just take sacrifices. You can't understand Jesus on the cross unless you understand the theology of sacrifice in the Old Testament, which anticipates his once and for all sacrifice. Mm. Yeah, no, it's really well put. I think 
I've been experiencing so many conversations recently with friends of mine who are really ready to kind of throw out the Old Testament and all of the very important and beautiful things that it does for the New Testament because it seems hard to reconcile this God of the Old Testament. Like the behavior feels maybe inconsistent, maybe more violent, maybe more harsh. Um, And there's just kind of an awkwardness that I feel like is making maybe modern Protestants want to shy away from it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. What do you think the effect of that would be if people actually tried to live that out? Yeah. Well, I, I think what would happen is what has happened through church history going back to a time when there was this popular preacher out of Alexandria, Egypt, called Marcion, who felt that the Old Testament was violent and didn't comport with his understanding of Jesus in the New Testament. And then all of a sudden, he realized that an awful lot of the New Testament <laughs> is based on the Old Testament. So he just started discarding parts of the New Testament, beginning with the book of Revelation, which also presents a picture of Jesus as a violent warrior coming back to render final judgment against spiritual and human enemies. And 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 then he began to notice just how much of the New Testament is permeated with the Old Testament. Um, and so he ended up with a very small Bible. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of, well, another way of thinking about it, I always, <laughs> whenever I think of people jettisoning the Old Testament, it reminds me of the way my father, when I was young, used to take me to the movies. It was, he was kind of eccentric in this way. He never checked when the movie started. We just go to the movies and more often than not, we'd come 20 minutes before the end and we'd watch the end and it was pretty exciting, but I didn't know what was going on because I didn't watch the first hour and a half. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and you really can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. And, and again, Jesus fully endorses and embraces the Old Testament now you know, is coming, as I say, um, has a big effect on the Old Testament uh, on, you know, for instance, in the area of violence, he he doesn't eradicate violence. What he does is he heightens and intensifies the battle and directs it toward the spiritual powers and authority. Mm. And, and he models, um, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he tells Peter, put away your sword, if I wanted to, I could have myriads of my father's heavenly army here. And this battle takes him to the cross, and he defeats the powers of authority through his death and resurrection. But he also tells us that he's coming a second time to, you know, render judgment against all wickedness. So he completes the Old Testament. The the battles in the Old Testament are acts of God's judgment, which kind of anticipate the final judgment. So you're not too surprised that people who reject the violence of the Old Testament also end up rejecting a kind of violent uh, judgment scenario. But but right. it's um, and adopt a kind of annihilationist approach 
but um, but these, in my opinion, are interpretive strategies to not really try to understand the Bible, but rather to solve a problem that a 21st century Western Christian has. And that's one thing I want to point out, that I think that the idea that um, that violence, this kind of divine violence against evil is unseemly, is very much a product of living in a rather peaceful Western environment. Um, if I may, in my book, I quote Mirshaw Volt, who's a theologian at Yale Divinity School, and he grew up in Croatia uh, during the violence in Croatia. And Mirsov, who's no fundamentalist, uh, though I think he calls himself a traditionalist these days, says, um, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That is exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I can't come. Then he goes on and gives some statistics of the people who died and who were displaced. And then he goes on to say, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness. Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Mm. And, and you know, I think Mirosov voices um, the hope that people who suffer persecution, which is the vast majority of Christians even today, um, feel, rather than those of us who, as I say, live in the rather calm and peaceful West, um, might feel difficulty with. And, and don't get me wrong, I live in the peaceful 21st century West. And, you know, I, I kind of wish God <laughs> were uh, not as violent as <laughs> he's uh, described to be. It would certainly and be I more convenient. We, yeah, it would be more convenient. Um, the other thing I would point out is I think a lot of my friends, and they are my friends, like uh, Peter Enns, um, and I don't know him personally, but Greg Boyd. I think they have great, um, great intentions. And one of them is, you know, by removing what they see as the obstacle of God's violence, maybe more people will affirm the faith or feel comfortable with their faith. But I'm somebody who became a Christian years ago in, uh, in college when I was confronted by the fact that God was a judging God. And I knew I was on the wrong side of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I, I don't think, you know, and I've talked to Pete about this. We, we have different stories. I mean, he grew up in a fundamentalist background and kind of rebelled against 
that. And I grew up in a very liberal Christian context and I, and the gospel was pretty diluted, let's say, if it was there at all. So, um, so we have different backstories as well. Okay. There's so much to unpack in what you just said. (laughs) Thank you. And wow, where to start? I think to call attention to a few things so that I can take a note and we can return to them is on the one hand, you mentioned a reading of the Bible as this unified story of God and that in order to understand Mm -hmm. divine violence, you have to understand the story which has an arc of God's fight against evil, which has a progression. Yeah. I know from reading your book that it advances through stages. Also significantly, it's I have a number of friends who always go, oh, is it going to be me when they listen to this podcast and hear me say I have a number of friends? But today I'm not going to say who they are, <laughs> uh, but who travel as a part of their, uh, not recreationally, professionally. And it's it's fascinating how if you leave the Western bubble, a number of interesting things happen, one of which is the difficulty with the wrath of God sort of evaporates, as does a difficulty with many of the other attributes of God, like his miraculous presence. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah. I, it ended up in a conversation recently being put this way, where someone said, you know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world. <laughs> kind of going, we do, you use this term in your book, we have a cognitive environment, and you mentioned in a footnote somewhere where the term comes from, but go, you know, we are situated in a way that makes certain elements of God accessible and blinds other elements. And Yeah, that's right. Because of that, the next thing I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about some is actually very basic, and it has to do with, you know, you begin your book with readerly practices. We just need to talk about how we're going to understand what the Bible is saying. And so I just ask, one, what are hermeneutics? And two, (laughs) what are sort of the basic ones that we need if we're really coming to the Bible hoping to learn something of this knowable God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's well asked. And uh, first of all, hermeneutics is just a fancy word for uh, the study of interpretation and the principles of interpretation or read simply reading that flow out of it. And uh, everyone has a hermeneutic, whether they're conscious of it or not. Um, you know, it's it's better, I think, to be aware and to give some reflection to what we're doing when we are reading or interpreting the text. And I w- would begin by saying before we get into the weeds a little bit, that uh, the basic message of the Bible is clear. Um, The message of salvation is really clear to anyone who reads the Bible, whether they're taking into account some of the principles I'm about to 
um, mention or not. But uh, on the issues that we're talking about now and on other uh, issues, uh, the scriptures need to be interpreted. And while I believe very strongly that the Bible is without error in everything that it intends to teach, I'm also very aware that our interpretations, including mine, aren't inerrant. So, um, so, so one of the things, and you were kind of, you were hitting on this when you were talking about, you know, people who get exposed to interpretations in other cultures. One of the things I want to encourage people to do is to expose yourself to uh, different uh, perspectives from people who are different than you are. That's true in terms of, say, gender or economic, ethnicity. Um, and and sometimes I, I don't mean you necessarily have to read books or commentaries by such people, just as you can engage in a discussion with them about their understanding of a text. That doesn't mean they're always right and you're always wrong, but it means that it gets you to think through issues. But our goal is to hear the voice of God, who's the ultimate author of Scripture. God speaks through human authors who are embedded in their uh, cultural context. That's why we could often, uh, people often talk about the incarnational aspect of Scripture, that is, it's fully human and it's fully divine. Um, and so, um, so a couple things to keep in mind, just to name two, uh, what I think are really important are understand the type of book you're reading, the genre of the book, uh, it's the technical term, because genre triggers reading strategy. A, um, and, and, and so you need to keep that in mind and think deeply about it. I think one of the issues when it comes to Genesis 1 to 11 is that uh, people don't think deeply enough about what type of literature it is, and they sometimes only think in terms of either it's myth or it's straightforward history. And there, as I explained in my book, there's a better option there. And then the other thing to keep in mind, and when you first hear this, it's a little unsettling, but the Bible was not written to us. It was written to a specific, uh, the different books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, were written to specific audiences who were contemporaries of the human author answering questions that they had. But the Bible was written for us. You know, that's what we mean when we say it's canonical. The church recognizes that this is authoritative writings that give us our standard of faith and practice. But it was written in Hebrew and Greek, and uh, and even to translate from Hebrew and Greek involves a lot of interpretive decisions, um, but none that would obscure the important basic message of Scripture. So that's kind of a lengthy, but... Uh, uh, I, I go in, as you know, into more detail in the book itself, because I start the book um, saying, look, if we're going to talk about controversial issues, we have to, first of all, see what what is Scripture and how we should interpret it. 
Okay, so this is all super, super helpful because I'm aware that it's really hard to see our own lens. I mean, that's my very dumbed down version of yeah. hermeneutics, but it's like I'm aware of it in other people, but I'm not always aware of the water that is covering my eyes that I'm swimming in. Um, so I, yeah. I love that there's a, a need to identify it and there's a posture that we need to enter into study with. The current lens of the culture has... I think some goals in mind for our own individual safety. You just kind of don't don't go like poking certain ant hills. Um, the New Testament yeah. is uh, best read as this meek and mild Jesus who is love, and we kind of omit the violent aspects of who he is. Don't really like the idea of him storming a temple. Don't really like the idea of him coming back with robes dipped in blood. Let's move quickly past those and back to him healing people. Um, yeah. I have to I have to pause right now though before we go into some of the controversies you talked about and say that I was and continue to be so struck by the tone that you bring to the book. These days it feels like a conversation back and forth between people that disagree or even are trying to bring new ideas to the table. It can turn into a bit of a shouting match. It can turn into a bit of a yeah. you're a fool for thinking this way. Let me let me correct you. Um and your yeah. your tone is actually really a like a breath of fresh air. Like, like for the folks that have been on the news or on social media recently, like turn that off. Yeah, can I? I'm just going to give an example. And, and yeah, and this is actually from your book because this is it's an interesting model. But you're about to begin engaging some scholars and say, before starting my interactions with these different scholars, let me begin by stating my appreciation and respect for their work. We are all grappling with an issue that has often been troubling to Christians. We all love God and place our trust in Jesus. I have heard some who vilify the work of particularly the first group of scholars, but I know that those in this group have the best intentions and are also extremely bright and insightful. That's a highly unusual way of engaging your competitors. (laughs) Well, I, I have a couple of advantages of of over 40 years being on the receiving end of some vitriol myself. And then secondly, one of the main people I interact with is Peter Enns, who was my student and my colleague. And we've done a lot of projects together. He's one of my best friends, um, one of my beer drinking buddies, or maybe it's margaritas. (laughs) But but, um, yeah, so so I always had Pete in mind, but I hope even if I didn't know Pete, just because um, we want to impute the best motives to others uh, like we would want. And and in the case of Pete, I know they're really there. I mean, he wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. For, for people who don't like Pete, I would recommend reading that book. Um and I, I know he's also been the recipient of a lot of, a lot of um, theological trash talking, shall we say, and um, and he's and people think he's angry, but I know him. He's not angry. He's he really loves people, and he's trying to help people, particularly those who are struggling with their faith, because they've grown up, grown up like him, and kind of a. a fundamentalist context. So, so I actually, I asked Pete to read it in manuscript form just to make sure 
that um, I represented him fairly and also I had the right tone. And, um, and uh, you know, he we disagree. We still disagree. I, I don't think I've convinced him <laughs> yet. But, uh, but I keep working on it. <laughs> well, what I love about the tone is it like it's the same tone that I think you have to bring to the authors of the Old and the New Testament if you're going to take it all balanced yeah. oh, and well. Right. And yeah. I, to me, it was really refreshing. And like I, if you're going to be dealing with these topics of violence and sexuality and, and science and evolution, like you, these are some topics that people will go to war for and have. And yeah. so. I, yeah. Anyway, I, I want to name that as something that even is a takeaway, though maybe it wasn't meant to be because it's not in your subtitle. It's definitely one of my takeaways. Well, thank you. I, I you know, on the on the other hand, I, I think I I do nonetheless present my viewpoints over against those viewpoints, try to do it ironically, but clearly yeah. I am trying to convince people away from the other right. ideas. You know, I wouldn't say it's with... And, apology or kind of shyness, but it is with a, a kindness that you are engaging that I, I think is rare. So anyway, just want to say that I'll throw that out there. Cause it's something I'm thinking about and uh, let's jump in. We a do want to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And because it is in my mind, the most accessible, we're going to start with just a question on beginning to engage divine violence and sort of summarizing there, you know, you you say in your book, and many of us have experienced this. It is possible to try to explain away uh, or ignore the theme of divine violence, but it's not ultimately accurate. Like you can't get away from it. And there's sort of this, there's kind of this. Hey, right now in our section of the world, there's an impulse in. Protestant Christianity to kind of explain away or sideline God's violence. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. In the the unified picture of God, he's depicted as a warrior. And given that, how do you look at the Old Testament and what seems to be what people identify as an angry God and reconcile that with I am also seeing merciful love because I know it's a unified story how do I make sense of the destruction of cities I first of all think that that that's the impression one gets if they read quickly through the old and New Testaments. And indeed, there is continuity and discontinuity on this topic, as we talked about earlier. But let's begin with the fact that in the Old Testament, too, God is pictured as an incredibly gracious and loving presence. Um, You know, after human sin in Genesis 3, uh, God not only doesn't annihilate humanity, he begins to pursue reconciliation uh, right away and keeps extending his grace again and again to his wayward people. Um, But it is also true that in the Old Testament, um, God judges sin. 
and sometimes there's a delay, but um, but but the story of the Bible as whole, Old and New Testament, is the story of God's ultimate defeat of evil, and it's a coherent story. I suggest in my book, though it comes in phases. So in the Old Testament, uh, God uses violence against human enemies, whether those enemies are nations that are are um, threatening Israel, or else uh, Israel itself, when it sins grievously against God. In the New Testament, the terms I used earlier were heightening and intensified. It's interesting that the Old Testament ends with this anticipation of the coming of the warrior God uh, in a number of places, but maybe nowhere more notable than Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where in response to the rising up of these horrific beasts out of a sea that represent uh, oppressive human kingdoms, uh, the one like the Son of Man riding a cloud comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, and with the help of the the Holy Ones, uh, defeats the beasts. And so during the intertestamental time period, there's this expectation of the warrior that comes. And you might notice John the Baptist, when he, before he baptizes Jesus, talks about the one who comes after him is going to chop out the rotten wood. He's going to gather all the chaff and burn it with unquenchable fire. Then when Jesus comes, he kind of subverts John's expectations by going out and healing the sick, exercising demons, and preaching the good news. And uh, and as I said earlier, uh, Jesus heightens and intensifies the warfare, so now it's directed toward those spiritual powers and authority. But his death and resurrection and ascension are all described using military terms in places like Ephesians 4, 8, Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And, and the question, if you ask the question, was John the Baptist wrong? The answer is no. He just didn't understand that Jesus's coming was a two-part affair. And that's why you get that imagery from Daniel 7, 13 and 14 again in places like Mark 13 and Revelation 1 describing his second coming. And for those of your uh, listeners who haven't recently read Revelation 19, 11 and following, uh, I'd encourage them to look at that, to describe, to see the description of Jesus coming back to bring the final judgment and winning an ultimate victory over against evil and thus saving his people. So it's a coherent story, though it has continuities and discontinuities. Hmm. I want to ask, we've said in this podcast that depending where you are on the world, the theme of God's justice, judgment, violence might be troubling to you or might really not be. And in much of the world, it's not the issue that it is here. What about our cultural moment makes this Mm. difficult? I guess to say, we're in the United States, we're in the Protestant church, 
what are the things that you see make this hard for us to handle? Well, I think we're in a very unusual situation in terms of the history of the church um, with all of uh, Christian complaining about supposedly losing our religious liberty over certain issues. There's never been a more peaceful place. And sometimes we begin to think that, gee, our, our culture is, is Christian in some ways. And actually, historically, the church falters the most when it's not living under persecution. I'm writing, the book I'm writing now makes this one look uh, like it's not controversial. I'm writing on my, one of my publishers asked me to write a book on the Bible and public policy. So I'm dealing with issues like immigration, same-sex marriage, climate change. Oh, good. Just the uh, simple stuff. Abortion. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think the church in the West at this moment is probably the weakest church globally <laughs> that I'm aware of. You know, I traveled to Asia. I taught at Beijing for about 10 years in a row until about six years ago, you know, where the church deals with different levels of persecution. They seem to have a, a clearer appreciation for the unalloyed biblical message, shall we say. Mm. But, um, but, I, but I think maybe one of the reasons why we just don't like our fellow non-Christian citizens thinking that we hold unpleasant views about God. I may be wrong, but sometimes I get that impression. I definitely get that impression as well. And it seems to be the, the narrative that repeats itself for many of my old college friends. There's a there's like an embarrassment when they have to kind of reconcile some of these things that are, that are really difficult and... Um, even if they do point to Jesus, even if they do, even if the violent acts are for saving this group of people these days, it's, it's a tougher pill to, to swallow. And I think to defend for a lot of, a lot of younger people these days. Yeah. I don't think we sometimes recognize the level of cultural toxicity that we really live in. And therefore I think sometimes we, suffer a loss of understanding of what we're being saved from (laughs) that some of our global uh, brothers and sisters still feel every day. Right. One thing we have noticed recently through a number of conversations is just to name one thing that makes us hard about our moment is it seems like we live in a cultural context uh, where it's really hard to believe that we that a person could deserve judgment right like, like we feel right. very opposed right. to the idea that actually a person could be aligned with evil and that not only that they could be aligned yeah. with evil right. but that their alignment with evil would actually merit uh ju- like <laughs> judging and we do yeah. go you know people can't make those judgments and I, like a I agree to a certain extent that it's very hard for people to do, but that it doesn't follow that God couldn't. And so simply to name one feature of a culture that we actually already talk about on this podcast quite a bit is that we live in a moment where the self is extremely central 
And when that's true, it's really hard to say or even try to defend the fact that a person can really be wrong such that they're opposed to good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um not on the other hand, you know, I I work closely with as I said with my friend and your friend Dan Allender uh who counsels people who have been egregiously abused. So I don't want to give the impression that that we don't experience evil um in our culture as well it's it's just seems to be a different type of harm than say uh a christian as a christian experiences in beijing or in saudi arabia or someplace like that okay okay we only have a little bit of time left and i wish we had more because we could kind of sit here and pick your brain all afternoon long but i guess that's really the point of the book. And so for those who do want to dive more into this, go get it. Go check it out. Go find confronting Old Testament controversies. Link in the show notes. Exactly. I do want to touch on this piece that you talk about, this evolution in science and the church and this sort of history with trying to, I think, either make it work or make it fit and try to push back against it because everything needed to be super literal I have very distinct memories in high school of like Christian classmates needing to take down the theory of evolution because it was a direct affront. Like if one was true, then the Bible couldn't be. I I remember the Pope Francis said something about we need to stop banging our heads against the wall, trying to like fight some things in science. Not a direct quote, folks. If you want to Google that, he didn't actually say those words, but it was pretty close. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What what, what was your posture diving into... um, the faith and science and the history there. Yeah, I, I, what I want to point out most importantly in the book is that if you take into account what we were talking about earlier, the genre, as well as reading it in its ancient context, not its modern context, uh, bottom line is that Genesis 1 to 11, and the rest of scripture is just screaming out loud the claim that Yahweh made everything, including us, and tells us an awful lot about who we are and our relationship with God, but just is not interested in the question of how God did it. So whether evolution is true or not is actually kind of irrelevant to the truth of scripture. And so in my own, my own, um, interest of, you know, I think, uh, we can turn to scientists and say, go at it. Tell us what your best thinking is on it. And, um, and I happen to have the privilege since I'm on the advisory council of the Biologos Foundation, which Francis Collins is a evangelical Christian who sequenced the human genome founded and, also on something called the Science for Seminaries program that the American Association for the Academy Science have a great opportunity to hang out with some world-class Christian scientists. Um, and, and, you know, they 
reveled in glory in the fact that the scientific evidence is very, very strong, both on the genomic level as well as paleoanthropology that supports evolution, contrary to what you sometimes hear, which is kind of mystifying to me that some some people are writing that Darwinism or or evolutionary theories under some kind of threat or about ready to crumble, which is the opposite of the truth. Um, and so I can look at that and not feel threatened by it as somebody who believes the Bible's true and everything that it intends to teach. I use the term inerrancy for scripture. Uh, but I know that it's not intending to teach us how God did it. So we could look at God's other book, uh, the book of nature, the Belgic confession, a 17th century reformed confession, as well as elsewhere, talks about how God speaks to us through two books, nature and scripture. And when we interpret both correctly, they'll never contradict each other. And I'm confident in that. So, um, so those are some of my thoughts. And I thought it was especially important to talk about this because I know the statistics of how many like people who were very engaged in young life or their high school uh, church groups lose the leave the faith because they're confronted with this idea that, and they get it from uh, atheistic scientists too, not just from their Christian ministers that you have to choose. You either have to choose the Bible or science. You can't be both. And right. that's a false dilemma in my opinion. And no, no person should ever have to make a choice between those two, in my opinion. Mm. I just need to give everybody a minute to catch back up with that because what you're saying is extremely hopeful and a profound relief to return to, there's the book of nature, there's the scriptures. When you read them right, they will not contradict each other. And God actually uses both in sort of the presentation of truth and in making reality accessible. Like, this is just a very uh, helpful I couldn't decide whether to say hopeful or helpful, so I landed in kind of this middle age territory. Yeah, yeah. But (laughs) it's like a helpful shift of uh, a paradigm to go, you know what? Whatever the next cool thing science discovers is, it's only going to increase the splendor of God and is not actually going to do anything about the inerrancy of the scriptures in their revealing of who God is and what he is like and what he's up to. That's that's right. You want to know what I think the next cool thing's going to be? <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. Which I don't address in the book. But I also, through these different groups, have the occasion to hang out with some world-class astrophysicists, including Jennifer Wiseman, who's a Christian, who's the head of the Hubble Telescope Project. And... and uh, they are discovering thousand, well, so far over a thousand planets in other solar systems, but they're now hypothesizing 
one planet per star throughout the cosmos and there are 200 billion stars in our solar system and another astrophysicist Anton Kokomar told me they're now saying 400 billion solar systems holy smokes so the the next uh, well it's not the next one they've actually been discussing this since medieval times how are we (laughs) to think of extraterrestrial life right so but what, I just love that topic because I know personally Christians who are bothered by the concept as though it would represent a new challenge and go, I'm yeah. sorry, you can look back hundreds of years. If you don't want to look back hundreds of years, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful yes, essay yes, on right. yeah, um, extraterrestrials and what it will mean for salvation and is profoundly unbothered by... Yeah, uh, like the conceptual probability. It's just so funny that it seems new, but it's not. Yeah, right, right. But it only seems new because they've actually discovered these planets now. <laughs> right. Dr. Longman, so, thank you so much yeah. for, for jumping hey, on with us today. Thank you, thank you guys. Um, it's been I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been really enjoyable. I hope for the for you guys listening that we've, I think, taken away some of like the fear of engaging these things. That, that was Really, I think one of the main invitations here is you can engage these, you can confront these things, and there's there's actually a lot to be gained. Um, so, want to thank you again, and guys, if you want to go check out the book, highly recommend it. Confronting Old Testament controversies, or if you want to read like forty or fifty books, you could just uh, check out the rest of the Tremper Longman the Third Canon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> thank you, guys. I appreciate that. 